The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. It's good to be with you this morning, and I want to welcome you all in the name of Jesus Christ this morning. I believe we have some visitors with us this morning that I want to welcome as well, just generically, thanks for being here. And then I think we also have a visiting missionary, is Jamie Boyles to be found? Where is she? Hey, Jamie Boyles, let's give it up for Jamie. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jamie, for the incredible work you continue to do for the kingdom of God, and we're glad to have you with us this morning. We are closing down our sermon series right now, which means next week we begin a new one called When You Pray, Praying Your Way Into God's World. So when Jesus teaches his disciples in Matthew 6 how to pray, he says, when you pray, pray in this way. And we're going to be taking the Lord's Prayer then, line by line by line, for the next six weeks, talking about what it means to pray our way into God's kingdom. So I hope you'll be here next Sunday, October 20, as Ben kicks us off in our new sermon series. But we're winding down Christ and crisis this morning. And I just wanted to start by thanking from the bottom of my heart each and every person who with courage and candor came up here and shared their story with us. So I want to thank Rob and Val and Jean and Mike and Holly and Jason and Dara and Lisa and Rachel and Cody. Thank you. Let's give them a round of applause. So, so grateful for you all in sharing your stories with us and sharing what faith looked like during crisis. And as we've been saying for the last few weeks here, this has been a heavy and hard series at times. Um, And I think it's appropriate that it's been heavy and hard at times because life is heavy and hard at times. And I, for one, am really, really grateful to be a part of a body of Christ followers who are willing to have these hard and heavy conversations, who are willing to talk about difficult things and, most of all, walk with each other in the heaviness. I think that's been a constant through line in this entire series has been just how important it is to have a body of believers around you, not just this for an hour and a half on a Sunday with 300 people in an auditorium, but specifically smaller groups of Christ followers that can walk with you day to day. And so I do want to encourage you yet again, if you talk to Steve Shoemaker, our connections delegate, talk to Kelly, talk to me, talk to Ben, we want you to be involved with a smaller, intimate group of Christians that can walk with you through the the triumphs, the tragedies, the quotidian day-to-day tasks. That is what it is about, and there are just things that we can do in that kind of a setting that we can't do here. And so I want to encourage you to, if you haven't, get connected with a connections group. But this has been a a powerful series, I think, in a lot of ways. And I've just been so grateful for everyone who's shared their story 
over the last seven weeks. And we wanted to close things down, though, uh, coming back not to a story from within our congregation, but a story that undergirds our entire congregation to the story of the gospel. We want to come back this morning to the story of Jesus Christ. And so I want to ask you to join me in prayer before we begin. Jesus, we give thanks. We give thanks for your story that has woven our stories into it, the story that we know ourselves to be a part of, and the story that speaks to us the truth about who we are, what we're doing, where we're going, and most of all, what you are doing and have done and will do. We praise you, Jesus. I praise you for this church. And God, we ask for your Holy Spirit's illumination this morning. I ask you for the gift of preaching. And we give thanks in your name. Amen. The 80s were a good time to be a Celtics or a Lakers fan. Some of you were around then. Uh... I was not around until the end of it, but you couldn't watch an NBA Finals without the Boston Celtics or the LA Lakers or probably both of them going head-to-head with one another. And so my dad was a huge Celtics fan in the 80s, and his best friend Tom was in love with the Lakers. So the Finals were just a great time for them to set aside their similarities and focus on their differences. And... It was one year, I think it was probably 84 or 85, that my dad was unable to watch one of the games. He had something going on that night, but fortunately, the 80s were not only the Celtics' heyday, but they were also the VCR's heyday. So he was able to record it, and he gets home, and he's getting ready to watch it, but he gets a phone call. And he answers the phone, and it's his friend Tom, and Tom says, hey, did you see the game? And my dad's like, no, 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 no. I haven't seen it. I don't know a thing about what happens. I don't know who won. I don't want to know any single thing. Don't say a word. To which Tom replied, okay, but you're not going to like it. (laughs) Which took my dad pretty quickly from sadness at what was obviously a Celtics loss to anger at Tom for spoiling the game. Because... We all hate spoilers. Well, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say all of us. My mother-in-law will actually like flip to the last three pages of a book, read it, and then decide if she's going to go back to the beginning to read the whole book, which is like the eighth deadly sin for me. I don't understand it. But most all of us do not like spoilers because a spoiler... It robs us of that first experience of the story itself, of the unfolding and the revealing of all that information which a great storyteller can do in film, in novel, in whatever. And so it robs us of that first experience, but also a spoiler changes the way we interpret that work of art. When I've had movies or books spoiled for me, I watch it and read it in a different way. I'm ingesting each plot point in a different way because I'm thinking ahead to what I already know. I'm thinking ahead to the twists and turns that are coming. And so it changes the way I experience and interpret and receive that story. 
And that's part of the reason that we don't like spoilers. And so I imagine that for all of us, there are movies or books or TV shows or other works of art that we would love to go back and experience for the very first time. Maybe it's a Celtics-Lakers game. Because experiencing it for the first time is just different. And so there's a part of me that has to wonder, of course, about the gospel story. What would it be like to actually go back to hearing the story without knowing the ending? Many of us, a lot of us have grown up in church, or at least grown up in churchy environments, so probably a lot of us can't even remember a time when we didn't know the story, when we didn't know exactly what was coming every time we heard the story of Jesus Christ. What would it be like to experience it for the very first time? What would it be like not to know how it's going to end? I finished a book this last week called Between Cross and Resurrection, a Theology of Holy Saturday. And it's the contention of this book, uh, this author named Alan Lewis, that Holy Saturday, the day right after Good Friday when Jesus is crucified and the day right before Easter Sunday when he rises again, that Holy Saturday is the perfect place from which to view the gospel story again. That if we can stand on Holy Saturday and, and look back at the events of Jesus' life and the horrific events of his death and into his burial without knowing what's coming the next day, that we might be able to hear something fresh about God, about God in Christ, about ourselves, about the world, and the gospel story. And so that's where I want to stand with you this morning. I want to stand in those long hours between, on the day between the days when Jesus is in the tomb. And John 19 says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take down the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Jesus, it turns out, was a sham. On the day between the days, with no idea what's coming, there is simply no other conclusion to draw than that Jesus had completely and utterly failed. You see, that first Holy Saturday is not a holy one. 
That Holy Saturday is not a day pregnant with anticipation of what's right around the corner. It's not a day where you're just expecting joy and and hope in the morning. It's just the day after the end. It's not the day between any days. It's just the day, as Alan Lewis says, it's, it's an empty void a nothing, shapeless, meaningless, anticlimactic, simply the day after the end. Those of us who've been through crisis, been through tragedy, who've listened to these stories of crisis or walked with someone through crisis can go some way towards imagining the emotions of Jesus' friends and followers on that first Holy Saturday. We can imagine the long, empty hours of darkness and confusion, of denial and incomprehension, of sorrow and desolation. Because Jesus is dead, and he's in the tomb. So what does it mean for us on that first holy Saturday to look back on Jesus' life and death? What does it mean to look at Jesus from the vantage point of Holy Saturday? What do we know about him? Well, I think the first thing we know about Jesus on the first Holy Saturday is that Jesus died a shamed man. Whatever he was in life, whoever he was, that teacher, prophet, healer, Messiah, son of God, he's no longer that person. Everything that he was has been stripped away. Public trials in those days especially created a new social identity for you, namely that of a shamed person. And Jesus was not only tried, he was convicted. He was not only convicted, he was crucified, humiliated, utterly rejected. And so whoever Jesus was before this crisis and this horror struck, he's not the same person. And there's no going back to who he was before Good Friday. He died a shamed man. And the other thing we know about Jesus on Holy Saturday is that he died a failed Messiah. You know, there's a sense in which if he had been just a prophet, he might have been okay dying. There's a sense in which if he'd just been a prophet, his death wouldn't have created a theological problem or conundrum for his followers. Because as N.T. Wright points out, prophets died all the time. That's kind of just the territory for a prophet. So if he had just been a prophet he might have gotten away with death and they could have just posthumously venerated him as a martyr. But Jesus was the Messiah, wasn't he? It was supposed to be. And the Messiah was definitively not supposed to die. The Messiah was not supposed to be vanquished by the pagans. The Messiah was supposed to vanquish them. And to restore to Israel this golden age, this time of national prosperity and military might. And let's face it, Jesus is not that person. Because he's dead. And he's in a tomb. 
Thirdly, from Holy Saturday's perspective, Jesus died a false teacher. When Jesus dies, all of his critics, all the Pharisees, all the Sadducees, everybody who was against him, they won. They're right. And Jesus goes to the grave as a bad theologian and a sinner. Right? All those people who said he's a blasphemer, he, he's a false teacher, he's leading Israel astray, he's got this radical table fellowship with outcasts, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. We told you that was a bad idea. When Jesus is in the ground on Holy Saturday, the poor in spirit don't inherit the kingdom. Peacemakers aren't blessed. Meek don't inherit the earth. Enemy love? <laughs> what a crock. Nonviolence? Look where that got him. On Holy Saturday, everything beautiful and subversive and powerful and redemptive that Jesus taught and lived is buried with him. And yet, perhaps the most chilling thought of all on Holy Saturday is that maybe Jesus was the Messiah, and he didn't fail God, God failed him. Either Jesus wasn't who he said he was, or maybe Jesus was who he said he was, and God's not who God says he is. On Holy Saturday, everything is thrown into crisis. And it's precisely here as the church that we want to rush to the resurrection, don't we? I know I do. I am not the personality type that likes to sit in pain. I got to get past it. I got to avoid it. I got to get beyond it. I don't want to deal with the uncomfortable. I would much rather just get past it, get back to some kind of happiness, and even if that means ignoring some things that might be important. We want to rush to the resurrection. We want to rush to Sunday morning. But maybe we have something left to learn from Holy Saturday. I think one of the things that we can hear on Holy Saturday is the silence. Perhaps Holy Saturday calls us to silence. You know, we started with John's account of Jesus' burial in chapter 19. And John is the one that famously begins with the prologue about the word that was in the beginning, that was with God, that was God, that became flesh and is now dead and buried. God's speech has now become silent. And as one theologian has said, when the word of God is dead, the church has no words left to say. There are times 
in the face of grave crisis and horror and suffering and sin and death, where the only properly Christian response can be silence. There are moments and Saturdays in our lives where the only thing a Christian can faithfully say is nothing. But too often we want to rush to resurrection. We want to speak some kind of order out of the chaos. We want to articulate and make sense of someone else's suffering for them. Right? We want to find some rationalization, some meaning, some explanations. And the sad thing is, as Fleming Rutledge points out, is that oftentimes that comfort that we're trying to give is only comforting to the comforter. Oftentimes that comfort that we try to give to someone suffering is not doing anything for them. It's only doing something for us. It's, it's bringing some kind of equilibrium back to our world in the face of their tragedy. Now, there will come a time for words. There will come a time for words. But let us not rush to Easter Sunday those who are living a holy Saturday existence. Because when the word of God is dead, the church has no words left to say. You see, we live in a holy Saturday world. We live in that time between the times. We live on holy Saturdays suspended between penultimate disaster and ultimate redemption. But right now, it's Holy Saturday. And on Holy Saturday, our ability to make sense of the world remains buried. On Holy Saturday, explanation, meaning remains buried. On Holy Saturday, our happiness our life worth living, sometimes our hope, sometimes even our faith on Holy Saturdays remains buried. It's Saturday. And on Saturday, everything we thought we knew has been torn asunder. It's Saturday and the person that we thought we were, that we want to go back to but cannot, is gone. It's Saturday, and our ability to make sense of life, of, of everything, remains buried on Holy Saturdays. It's Saturday, and our dignity, our salvation, our theology, our everything remains buried at times. But Saturday is not the end of the story. However grim and grisly and tragic, 
however, whatever sense of finality we perceive, whatever has been done that cannot be undone, it is Saturday, but Saturday is not the end of the story. Our happiness, our meaning, our hope, it's buried and nothing will ever be the same and the questions may remain on Saturday but Saturday is not the end of the story it's Saturday but tomorrow is Sunday and Sunday praise Jesus is resurrection it's Saturday but tomorrow is Sunday and Jesus is risen and the Word of God has joined us in the flesh, has joined us in death, has descended into hell. And we bear on our bodies the marks of Holy Saturday. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life for if we have been united with him in a death like his we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his Catherine Tanner says that Jesus overcomes our weeping and terror by weeping and being terrified. It's Holy Saturday, but the Word of God has succumbed to Saturday that we might join that Word on that final Sunday morning. Praise Jesus, tomorrow is Sunday. Let's stand and praise the God of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, church.